the Total Soccer Show and our World Cup Group H preview. Last but not least, we come to the group that contains the Portuguese, featuring a man named Ronaldo, who may no longer have a club to please. Portugal is stacked with talent and they know just how to win, using the kind of poop housery other teams might consider a sin. Also here, repping CAF is Ghana, back on the main stage. The Black Stars will show up, but this probably isn't their golden age. Two-time champs Uruguay will be hoping to make a big leap, but fans of Liverpool, Madrid and Spurs might be hoping they don't go too deep. And finally, we have South Korea who aren't scared to commit, but their fate ultimately rests on whether Hyoung Min Sun is fit. My name's Ryan Bailey. Joining me today, a man who'll be telling us whether Darwin Nunes is good or bad as he previews Uruguay. Taylor Walkwell, hello. Yes, is my answer. Hello, my friend. And uh, because I am representing Uruguay, I must say up front, uh, technically four-time world champions. Thank you very much. That's why they have four stars on their shirt. They won two World Cups, but then they won the Olympics twice before the World Cup existed. So they rep four stars. That would be the reason for that disparity. <sighs> All right. Sit down, Uruguay. <laughs> also, Dude, <laughs> this this happened like every preview I read was like, oh, technically we've won it four times. Like it happened on like every preview that I read. It was in the comments section. So I'm just trying to preempt that right away by being obnoxious. And while I'm being obnoxious, I will also add, I, I know it, it is something closer to like Uruguay is how I'm supposed to say it. But I promise I will not say that for the, the rest of this episode. I will say Uruguay because I'm American and I feel like that pushes the levels of pretentiousness just a bit too far for me. Yeah, that's. I, I appreciate you uh, making that concession. <laughs> Thank you very much, Taylor. Join, joining us, a man who was once known as the dictator of Porto, your friend and mine, who's going Portuguese today, Joe Lowry. Hello. It's good to be back, baby. That's all I got to say. Portuguese, Porto. I'm ready to talk soccer. My subjects are ready. My people are ready. Ryan, let's do this thing, baby. Let's do it indeed, but not before we introduce our final host here to talk about... Uh, uh, the, the Korean Republic, the good Korea, right, Graham Redmond? <laughs> the, the good Korea. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that is a fair description of, of, of South Korea. Um, we're finishing our World Cup previews today with, in my opinion, the, the ultimate World Cup group where we have four teams from four different confederations. Mm. And I just feel like, I know you could say this about a lot of teams at the World Cup, but these four teams would never face each other at another tournament. And I, and I just love that about the World Cup. So I think this this group might actually be one of the most interesting groups for that reason. Oh, wow. Way to tease the episode, Graham. I love that. Thank you very much. And I'll just get this out of the way at the start of the episode. I apologize once again for my audio quality on this episode. I am traveling at the moment in a hotel room with paper-thin walls. You're hearing traffic and bell ringing and uh, all sorts of things here. So my sure. apologies for that uh, uh, before we move on. You're- uh, you're actually in one of the, the fire festival tents that the fans are staying at in Doha, aren't you? That's actually where you are. That's right. I need to go and pay $16 for a Budweiser, if you'll excuse me, shortly after this, Graham. But uh, yeah, um, before we get to... Only the- 16 That would be surprising if it was only $16. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of interesting stuff coming from those fan fests, and surely more to come as the tournament goes on. Uh, before we get there, though, live show plug time. Uh, this Sunday, November 20th, we're going to be at Littlefield, Brooklyn. We're going to be doing our live show. There is a few tickets remaining. Uh, link is in the description if you'd like to join us there. We'd very much like it if you would like to join us there. We're also doing a watch-along the following Sunday for Spain versus Germany. That's November 27th. Uh, that one starts at mid 
midday Eastern. Please join us for that for lots of fun and games. And Graham Ruthven, please tell the good people about our new Patreon. Yeah, so we're going to be busy while we're in Brooklyn. Those two live shows, as as you mentioned there, Ryan, we are also running a Patreon page during the tournament, not just while we're in Brooklyn. It'll be for the, the duration of the World Cup in its entirety. It's called TSS World Cup Plus, and the link for that is also in the show notes. So we'll be doing bonus shows every day. There'll be some video content, some blog content in there as well, and that will all live in our Patreon page. Patreon page so please subscribe to that. Please do that, listener. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, help support TSS at this time of World Cuppery. Uh, Group H time, though. Let's go through it. As I mentioned, Joe Lowry's going to be talking about Portugal. Uh, Taylor is going to not be saying Uruguay. Uh, Graham is going to be talking about South Korea. And I shall be covering Ghana for this episode. I'm going to kick off by uh, doing, as we have done for all these previews, a little run-through of the nickname and the name we are giving the team for this tournament. So I'll start off with Ghana, who are the Black Stars, because their flag has a black star on it, which is a symbol of Ghana. The black star is a symbol of pan-Africanism and anti-colonialism, inspired, I was reading earlier, by the White Star Line, the British shipping company, which has very much been taken um, for black ownership there. So the Black Stars is the nickname. The TSS nickname I am assigning them for this tournament is the Free Hits. The Free Hits, because... They have very, very low expectations to do this Ghana side. They are, by FIFA rankings, the lowest ranked team in the tournament. They are 61st in the FIFA rankings. Ghana has only won two games from 13 games in 2022 so far. They are quite literally the underdog in every game they're going to play at this tournament. So there's very little pressure on them. It's very freeing for them. They do have quite a lot of talented players, you could argue. Uh, they have gone to the knockout stages a few times this millennium as well. So I'm calling them the free hits because every game for them is a free hit, basically. Uh, Joe, Portugal, and their nicknames, please. So Portugal's actual nickname is Seleção das Quinhas, which is the selection of the shields. Apologies to our Portuguese listeners if they're out there, because I know I butchered that. I, I am sorry. That, so that, that refers to the shields that are on their flag. So there's five shields on Portugal's flag. It, it ties in similar to what you said there with Ghana, Ryan in the flag tie-in. My TSS nickname is less of a nickname and more of just like me venting my frustration about Portugal. So I, I guess there's that. It, it's this. The TSS nickname is our manager, Fernando Santos, should be put in soccer jail. Not for anything <laughs> bad that he's done that I know of. But man, Portugal are, are with England, they're with France in this trend of not caring at all about playing fun soccer. It's Fernando Santos, it's Didier Deschamps, it's Gareth Southgate. I don't know, these guys must have a book club, or I don't know what it is, but they have very similar soccer ideas, which can be effective. We've seen those teams make big runs. Portugal have won an international tournament recently. Uh, uh, France won the last World Cup. England have gone deep in tournaments in recent years as well. But it can be brutal to watch. It's like taking uh, pieces that you can put together to build some some really impressive statue, maybe the Eiffel Tower or something like that, and then just like dumping them all over the floor and using that as some sort of structure that is more <laughs> modern art than anything else. Like it is, it is tragic. I, I think people can already tell how little I like this Portugal team. They are stacked with talent, but man, like thank goodness I guess there's some Ronaldo drama because. I don't have many exciting things to say about Portugal and how they actually play soccer. So I, I'm, I'm glad we get to talk about off the field stuff. 
Oh dear. Uh, listeners, stay tuned to hear Joe tell us how Portugal are going to grind it out once again at this tournament. <laughs> Fun times ahead for all of us watching them. Uh, Taylor, Uruguay, if you will, their uh, nickname and the name you've given them. Sure. Their real nickname is La Celeste, the sky blue, which relates to their uh, ever-present uniforms. That is the shade they always go with. Uh, but my nickname for them would be the Mighty Ants. And that's not just because uh, Lucas Torreira made the squad, he and his five foot five frame. It is because ants can lift between 10 and 50 times their body weight. We all know that. Uh, Uruguay's population is fewer than 4 million, but they have the expectations of a larger nation when it comes to the World Cup. They have 400,000 fewer people in their population than does Croatia. Uh, so they are very small, but when you look at the names, they've got Suarez, Cavani, Fede Valverde, Darwin Nunez, uh, Diego Godin, Muslera, Bentancur, Jose Jimenez. There are so many talented players in this Uruguay team. A very veteran team at that, but youngsters coming through that will make them a uh, solid team across the board. But for a, a nation that small to have that many talented players uh, speaks volumes about them and the expectations that they carry with them. Nice, Taylor. So we need to see uh, Croatia play Uruguay for the punch above their weight yeah. derby then. Exactly. That's the one we need. <laughs> <laughs> good stuff. And Graham, That'd South- be a really good game too, I think. I- I- I'm down for that one. Yeah, I'd watch that for sure. Uh, Graham, finally, uh, South Korea and their nickname, please. Officially, South Korea are nicknamed Taijuk Warriors. And Taijuk is a Korean term referencing this concept of duality in Korean culture. And this duality is illustrated in the country's flag and the blue and red symbol that is split into two halves. So it's certainly the most philosophical nickname at this World Cup, and and I quite like it. Um, My total soccer show nickname for South Korea is Son of Anarchy. The first part, because so much of their game plan is about playing to Hyungmin Son's strengths, strengths, excuse me, more on that later. And the second part, because there is an element of anarchy to the way they counter press and the intensity they play with when they're at their best. And it's, uh, it's also a play on words because of the TV show. I don't, I don't know if you got that, Ryan Bailey. Did you get that? Uh, yeah, I actually think not only did I get that, Graham, but it's taken us eight episodes, but you have won the nickname game there. I think that's the best one. Yep. Well done. Yes. Thank yeah. you. What did I get as a prize? A cookie. Well done. Very good. Um, oh. Let's move on to talk about the story of each team heading into the tournament. Joe, I'll come to you first. Uh, try and keep us awake with the Portugal story, please. Okay, I can do that because there's a lot going on with Portugal right now. And as almost always, it centers around Cristiano Ronaldo. So I'm going to invite Graham and Taylor to fill in the gaps here as I go through because there may be some stuff that I've missed that Graham, who consumes everything in the world, will catch in Taylor because he loves Manchester United, will also catch or at least have an opinion about. Ronaldo did an interview with Piers Morgan. Good start. Right? Uh, really, really exciting. <laughs> Criticizing Eric Ten Hag and Manchester United. So he was recently suspended, Ronaldo, by Eric Ten Hag after refusing to appear as a substitute against Tottenham back in October. There's more beef here, I'm sure, behind the scenes that we don't even know about. But Ronaldo came out and said, I don't have respect for him, referring to Ten Hag, because he doesn't show respect for me. He goes on to say, I felt betrayed. I don't care. People should listen to the truth. Yes, I felt betrayed. I felt, I get sensing a theme here. Anybody? Betrayal? Okay. Yeah, we'll keep going. I feel that some people didn't want me here. There's a shock. Not only this year, but last season too. Ronaldo, I do think, (laughs) said some true things about Manchester United. Like he talks about the lack of progress that they made under Sir Alex Ferguson, but that is a conversation for another day that we do not need to have or do not have time for on this episode. Um, But yeah, so Ronaldo and and Manchester United are beefing. Then we get into the Portugal setup, and Ronaldo comes into the team, and there's this this weird interaction with Bruno Fernandes. 
that's gone sort of ice viral. Cold. They both play for Manchester United. I don't know that it was ice cold. There were people out there talking about that. It was a little strange. Maybe Bruno and Ronaldo don't get along all that well anyway. And so it was this weird sort of handshake, limp handshake, no eye contact kind of situation. It's like a three-second clip, at least the one that I saw. So there's a lot that went into that that we don't know about. Joe, I, I think read, maybe um, that's a little bit overblown, but there are a lot yeah. of things circling around Ronaldo right now, as there pretty much always are. Uh, that that could be a bit of a distraction for this team. I kind of doubt it, though. Jean Mario isn't worried about this. He gave a good statement to the media. I think he said this. It's not the first time that a player comes into the national team having a problem with his club. One of the advantages is that we put everything to the side when being here. When we get to the national team, it's another working group, and we try to focus on what's most important. And then he said later, the focus is always on him, referring to Ronaldo, and we are used to that. And I'm sure that is true, because Ronaldo is the first thing that all these players are asked about when they come into the national team camp every single time. Ronaldo is Portugal in so many ways, and and they kind of play like Ronaldo is Portugal, and, and I'll talk more about that later. In terms of recent results, Portugal have three wins, one draw, and two losses in their last six games. They lost to Spain and Switzerland. They drew with Spain. Those are in the Nations League. They beat the Czech Republic twice and beat Switzerland. So you can see them sort of competing against elite teams like Spain and and not always getting the better of those matches, but they're up there in the upper echelon for this tournament simply because of the talent they have. They have not always been performing up to that talent level recently before Those last six games that I mentioned, they finished second in their World Cup qualifying group behind Serbia. Then they beat Turkey and and North Macedonia in the playoffs to make it to Qatar. So not the most convincing pathway for them. They avoided Italy in that that playoff as well because Italy crashed out in that process. Before that, they lost in the round of 16 at the Euros with a 1-0 defeat to Belgium. And before that, to go all the way back to 2018, they lost to Uruguay in the round of 16 at the 2018 World Cup. So this team has, has been looking for a deeper run in a big tournament ever since they won the Euros back in 2016. I think they have the talent to do that. Whether or not they have the the cohesive approach to do it and, and to look convincing while doing it is a completely separate question. But at least off the field, and even in terms of some recent results and some of the challenges they've had, things are interesting, to say the least, with Portugal. Uh, Joe, one thing I read, I can't remember if it was uh, Jean Mario himself saying this or if it was just somebody else who covers the team, but it was that Ronaldo and Bruno had left Manchester at the same time, but Bruno was one of the last to arrive in camp or in the locker room. So Ronaldo apparently said to him, did you come by boat? And that was the awkwardness of the exchange. But even there, <laughs> if Ronaldo was trying to be light, Bruno's reaction was not light. And if anything, he, he either failed to yes and and didn't really have a good comeback or wasn't really trying to joke with Ronaldo. But... I, that did seem, even if it's overblown, that did seem not the warmest of relations between those two. It was a very formal handshake for sure. Yeah, so, no doubt so, about it. I mean, the, the boat joke's not bad. It's just not great. So I, I don't really blame Bruno on that one. Taylor, why didn't Ronaldo let him come in the Ronaldo Coptor or the Ronaldenberg? <laughs> I mean, he's definitely got his own method of travel. I'm sure there is a private jet that Ronaldo takes everywhere. And I think that's a fair question, Ryan, honestly. Like, if you're in the same team traveling to the same camp, you would assume that they would all ride together and maybe Diogo, Diogo uh, like, loading their luggage for them while they sit in the airplane. Uh, but that they all came separately maybe does, like, like uh, make you wonder how unified that team is, both Manchester United and Portugal. Indeed. All right. Uh, A quick story of Ghana from me. Uh, They didn't qualify for the World Cup in 2018, but they made three World Cups before that. Of course, we know uh, knocking out the USMNT in 2010 at the round of 16 stage after that agonizing extra time period. That same tournament, they went on to uh, play 
Uruguay in the next round in the quarterfinals. They could have become the first African team in the semifinals of this competition were it not for Luis Suarez's famous handball on the goal line. And would you looky here, they're facing Uruguay oh once again at this contest. Oh that one should be very interesting. Oh boy, indeed. Uh, they also played uh, the USMNT in 2014, of course, with that 2-1 US win. Uh, a tournament where there was a little bit of disharmony in the camp. If you remember, there were headlines after um, $3 million in cash had to be flown out to Brazil to uh, to help with the squad and they had some unrest over some unpaid bonuses and I remember you'll remember listener maybe seeing the footage of like trucks being uh, a truck going along the highway carrying three million dollars going towards the Ghanaian hotel so yeah a bit of a shenanigans was it in one dollar bills in trucks yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, the, it actually came in the Ronaldo copter in one dollar bills. Yeah, um, to uh, to to the Ghanaian hotel. Uh, this this Ghana team, though, not in superb form. Uh, they haven't really shown up at the last two Afcon tournaments. They made a group stage exit last uh, at the most recent one. Uh, their worst ever finish there. You might remember they lost the final game of the Afcon tournament to the debutant Comoros. So not great from Ghana. In that respect, and they uh, they only qualify for this tournament very narrowly. Uh, in the final round of CAF qualification, they beat Nigeria only on the away goals rule. They had two draws in that uh, two-legged uh, uh, game to get a, a match up to get through to the World Cup. Uh, they went through without winning either leg of that. So uh, say what you will about that. And in the previous round of CAF qualification, by the way, they also tied points and goal difference with South Africa in their group and they needed a goal scored as a tiebreaker to go through. So they're here, they're here in Qatar by the narrowest of margins. But, but some silver lining here. Uh, if you look at their last six, uh, six of the last seven games, they have victories. Uh, the only game they lost in that seven game streak was a friendly against Brazil. So, yeah, we'll see. Once again, the free hits here. Low expectations. They've got a friendly with Switzerland in Abu Dhabi on Friday. Maybe we'll learn a little bit more about them then. But yeah, uh, the story here is uh, maybe trying to reclaim some past glories, but having having the odds stacked against them in this one, I would say. Taylor, uh, the odds perhaps stacked against Uruguay, certainly by population means, but they will have some expectations at this tournament. Uh, they will. They will now. I think a couple months ago, maybe less so, because they were struggling in qualifying. That is sort of the uh, the story of them heading into this tournament. Uh, in 14 games, they had four wins, four draws, and six losses. That's good for 16 points, a negative five goal difference. And they were genuinely at risk of not making this World Cup, which is rare for Uruguay. Uh, so they made the... I would say bold but difficult decision to sack Oscar Tabarez, the 74-year-old manager who'd been in charge for 15 years. He'd been with them through illness uh, and uh, was still in charge, but it felt like maybe it was time for a change. Joe, do you know who they replaced him with? Yeah, yeah, it's Diego Alonso, Inter-Miami yes, legend is. manager Diego Alonso, who lasted a long time at MLS. How do you feel about Diego Alonso managing Uruguay? Are you surprised by that news? Do, do you see excitement from what you remember from Inter-Miami? No, no, not at all. But I, I will say, <laughs> like, Uruguay don't try to go out there and, and play, really. I mean, they, they can because they have the talent to do so, but their whole brand for years has been 4-4-2 or at least a two-forward front in some mm. sort of a mid-block. Maybe they'll press occasionally. But they're like this functional team, not really a flashy team. The flash comes from the players, not from the tactics. And Diego Alonso didn't really show anything more than being a functional, than having a functional Inter Miami team, and, and they weren't even really all that functional. So I, I kind of get it in that there's some 
some connection stylistically, but yeah, it is it is a weird hire. Uh, it, it is. Joe, you summed it, ver- summed it up very well because that's where he found success is sort of letting the players play. Uh, nine games in charge, Alonzo. Seven wins, one draw, one loss in his remaining qualifiers. Four straight wins, uh, six goals and one against. So a, a pretty big tournament, turnaround. They ended up finishing third in Common Bowl qualifying with a uh, zero plus zero goal difference in 28 points. So a, a, a big change from where they were under Tabarez. And now they've successfully qualified. Now they will be there. However, they get a tough draw in this group. And if they finish second, which seems likely, then they're going up against Brazil in the knockout round. So tough times for Uruguay, but I think that they were at risk of not even being here means that they're uh, pretty pumped to even uh, be in this position where they can make the knockout round and do big things. All right. Last but not least, let's get the story of the tournament from Graham Ruthven on South Korea. How have the Koreans been doing, Jake? So this will be South Korea's 10th straight appearance at the World Cup Finals. That is a run that goes all the way back to 1986. So they are used to appearing at these tournaments. They famously made a a shock run to the semi-finals of the 2002 World Cup, which they hosted. One of the, the biggest shocks in World Cup history, that run, and it's still talked about to this day. Beyond that World Cup, though, South Korea haven't really fared so well at this tournament. They haven't made it out of the group stage since 2010, and 50% of their total World Cup wins came in that run in 2002. And of the 22 nations to have played 30 or more matches at the World Cup, South Korea have the lowest win ratio. They've won just 18% of those games. So... Yes, they made the semifinals in 2002. Yes, they're used to being at World Cups. But actually, when you dig a little bit deeper, their record is slightly deceptive. They do tend to underachieve at at this tournament. Um, In terms of this World Cup, their qualification was pretty straightforward. They entered in the second round where they won five from six games and they conceded just once in those six games. Then in the the third round of qualifying, they won seven from ten. And even though they finished second in that third round of qualifying, that was only second to a, a historically strong Iranian team. Obviously, I, I preview, pre- previewed them last week. And as I mentioned then, that that's arguably their strongest ever, or not arguably, it is their strongest ever qualification campaign. So there was no shame in South Korea finishing behind them. Of course, the step up from Asian qualifying to the World Cup itself is, is a big one. But South Korea have established themselves as a, an Asian soccer superpower over the last two decades. As I've already said, that isn't quite reflected in the the record at the tournament itself, but uh, it's possible that some course correction could happen at this tournament. I think they need to start faster at this World Cup than they did at the last one. The last World Cup for South Korea was a really weird one because they they beat the defending world champions, Germany, in that tournament, but still went out in the group stage. So it was a little bit difficult to balance how that tournament actually went for them. And it, it took them a while to warm to the task in Russia. So... I think they need to get points on the board earlier, particularly with this group being maybe one of the more competitive ones at this World Cup. Um, they start their group with a, with a match against Uruguay, and I really do think they probably need something from that match to stand any realistic chance of, of making it to the last 16. But this is a team that has built momentum over qualifying. They've got one global superstar, who I will speak a little bit more uh, about later on, and they're a decent team. Very nice, Graham. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll learn a bit more about all these teams, their tactics, their managers, their rosters. Lots more coming. Stick with us for this Group H preview. 
Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our World Cup Group H preview. A couple bits of housekeeping just uh, to, before we get into it again. Uh, listeners, we are doing a live show in Brooklyn on November 20th. We would like your questions. If you have a listener question for us, please submit them through the usual channels. That's Twitter or contact at totalsoccershow.com or visit the totalsoccershow.com website to do so. And the other thing, once again, just apologizing for my audio quality. If you're hearing some bad audio, I am in an unusual space uh, today. But hey, um, Guardian Football half their computer sound like they're recording through a potato anyway so um, hopefully this isn't too bad by comparison where was I let's talk about managers and tactics shall we we'll go first to Mr. Joe Lowry who's going to tell us all about Portuguese soccer and their dour tactics yes I will Ryan good lead in Fernando Santos is Portugal's manager I referenced him earlier 68 years old, he's from Portugal, he's been a manager since the 1980s, not a Portugal, but just in, in soccer, and you can sort of tell in, in some ways that he's been managing this sport since the 1980s. He's been in charge of Portugal since 2014, or at least co-managing with Ronaldo since, since 2014. He's coached more than 100 games for this Portugal group. Uh, Portugal do not care about having the ball against big teams, so they averaged 32 per- they had excuse me 32% possession against Spain in their most recent game. Spain is, is like the extreme of all extremes when it comes to dominating the ball on the international scale. But that number, 32%, is pretty indicative of, of Portugal's approach against those teams. They can't really play this super up-tempo, high-energy style with Ronaldo leading the line. Like They, they cannot press defensively on, a, on any sort of consistent basis. Manchester United saw that last year. They're seeing it again this year. Under Eric Ten Hag, Ronaldo changes how you have to play. In the past, it's been for the better. I'm not so sure that that's really true at this point, given his age and, and some of the physical limitations we're seeing from Ronaldo. But they, they don't really press high up the field. They'll defend usually out of a, a 4-2-3-1 mid-block of sorts. So the line of confrontation will start maybe in the attacking half, but not way high up the field. Ronaldo will lead that line, often with Bruno Fernandes underneath him. And then you have a number of other key players, which we'll, we'll get to later. In the attack... There's so much quality. Like like the players on Portugal's team. I don't want I don't want this preview to sound like Portugal have no hope of winning this tournament. They do. Right? The players can win them games. There there's just almost nothing in the way of planned movements or coordinated rotation or any of that kind of stuff. That just doesn't happen for Portugal. It's a lot of players figuring things out, pointing and sort of trying to sort things out as they go and, and, and kicking the ball around. It happens that Portugal is so good that them just kicking the ball around without much of any attacking game plan is good enough for them to win games when you couple it with their defensive ability and their goalkeeping. Portugal are really good, and they're good enough. They're just good enough to be able to make a run. They're just frustrating enough to watch that uh, I get a little angry about Portugal. Same with France and same with some other big teams in this competition. But man, you cannot argue with their talent. This team is stacked. So, Joe, am I hearing this is like a slightly dull international version of... Do you remember when Harry Redknapp said to his... I think it was his Southampton team, just effing run about a little bit. Is it kind of just <laughs> a bit aimless? How, however you say that in Portuguese, yes. I think Fernando Santos has that idea. He wants them to run and be compact defensively. And, and hey, when there's space for them to go at, uh, go at teams in transition, Portugal, Portugal can be really good. So, yeah, I think maybe the more running Portugal do, the better off they're going to be, Harry Redknapp style. There we go. We could all learn from Harry Redknapp. Um, a little note on Ghana, whose manager is Otto Addo, the former Ghana midfielder, no less. He replaced Milovan Rejevic um, as manager, uh, who only got four months as manager. The uh, aforementioned AFCON debacle uh, finished him off. So uh, Addo was uh, Ghana's assistant 
2021, assistant to Rebic. He became the coach not that long ago. He's only played eight games so far. He was an assistant at Borussia Dortmund prior to that, and that's a club where he spent much of his playing career. He was born in Hamburg, was Otto Addo, but representing Ghana uh, on the national team. One of my biggest concerns for this Ghana side is in the coach and their coach having no real senior experience. As I mentioned, only eight games played with this team so far. And it also makes it kind of hard to research and learn a bit more about this team because the identity isn't entirely clear for the team just yet. He's played a 4-2-3-1. He's played a 3-4-3. He's played a 4-1-4-1 in that aforementioned Brazil friendly uh, a couple months back. So if you can ask me how they're going to play, um, no idea. Sorry. That's it. Taylor, Uruguay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Uh, you said Otto Otto had eight games in charge? I, I believe so, yeah. All right. Well, compared to him, uh, Diego Alonso is a crafty veteran because he's got <laughs> nine games in Woo! charge for Uruguay. Uh, yeah, and, and I will say, with that in mind, though, they did have that turnaround I mentioned in the last section, so let's talk about what he has done. Uh, he has basically uh, added... A more attacking game plan. Uh, Felipe Cardenas wrote a good piece about uh, Uruguay. He added a more modern pressing element to their play while maintaining the defensive reliability that had long characterized their football. I would agree with that summary. As Joe said, uh, historically a 4-4-2 uh, formation. They've played 4-3-3. They've played a number of different formations, if I'm being honest. They had a 3-5-2 against the USA. 4-3-3, 4-5-1, My guess would be most likely that they're in a back four uh, of some kind and likely a 4-4-2 uh, in good chunks of this tournament. Um, if it is a 4-4-2, Georgian de Arsqueta, uh might be on the left. Uh, he can also be a number 10. Uh, he's an inverted winger on the left flank. Uh, and regardless of whether or not it's him, uh, because they've got plenty of attacking options in there, it could be Valverde, uh, could be Palestri on the right. Uh, we will see those wide attackers move central to create midfield overloads, and then we will see the fullbacks get involved in the attack. Um, and... With that in mind, though, even if it is a back four, when they are building out, when they are trying to kind of establish possession, there was a really nice tactical piece by Liam uh, Tharm, uh, who noted we should watch for throw-ins that Uruguay have used set pieces pretty effectively, including throw-ins. But another thing he pointed out is that even in a back four, the deepest central midfielder, if it's uh, Torreira, if it's Benton, if it's Valverde, they will drop in off of goal kicks to make it almost a back three to sort of nullify any pressing that might be attempted by the opponent. Uh, so they have some formational fluidity, but they also don't really want to overextend themselves because their primary concern at this point, aside from Alonso's inexperience and how he'll be able to manage a tournament like this, is the very veteran uh, makeup of that back line. Most likely it's going to be some combination of Diego Godin, uh, Jose Jimenez, Martin Caceres, and Sebastian Coates, all of whom are uh, well into their 30s and definitely not uh, particularly pacey. So that means that they will either sit deep and counter or they will be very slow to push that back line up. And so I think what you'll end up getting is that sort of more direct Uruguayan attack that relies on the individual, as Joe said, because they have got plenty of attacking talent, which I will talk more about when we look at the roster later on. But for now, a, a strong build-up to this tournament by Diego Lonzo and Uruguay with a few little areas of concern remaining. All right. Thank you very much, Taylor. Uh, Graham, if you will, a little precis of South Korea and how they go about things these days. 
So Paolo Bento is the South Korean national team coach and he has been in charge since 2018. He's been at a World Cup before, back in 2014 when he was in charge of the Portuguese national team. That was pre-Fernando Santos, which seems like a lifetime ago. Uh, That World Cup didn't go so well for him as Portugal went out in the group stage with, of course, the USA edging them out on goal difference at that tournament. Um South Korean fans, in terms of this team and, and, and what Bento's doing with this team at the moment, they expect their team to play a specific way. They expect attacking, energetic football. At least that has been the case in recent years. I know in the past there's been more of a defensive focus, but really over the last 10 years, there's, there's, the South Korean fans expect their teams to be on, on the front foot. And while this South Korea team does play with energy and they can score goals, Bento's approach is slightly more conservative than we have seen from South Korea teams in the past and that hasn't been so popular and Bento has a bit of a point to prove at this World Cup despite the decent results that South Korea have had in qualification the last international window in September was a concerning one for South Korea so they drew with Costa Rica and they just about squeezed past Cameroon the the most worrying thing about those games and I watched both those games or at least the highlights of those game of those games was that South Korea just looked really short of ideas in the attack and I think they'll need to be better than that when the World Cup actually starts. So it feels like a poor tournament for Bento and he might be out of the door pretty quickly. In terms of their tactics, uh, South Korea have used a, a 4-4-2 recently, but there are signs that they will use a 4-2-3-1 formation at, at the World Cup. Bento, amid some of the criticism that he's been facing, has been looking to shift that that shape a little bit. He could also use a, a back five, particularly against the stronger teams. All that would take is for South Korea to, to drop a winger back to help out the defenders. But generally speaking... Um, South Korea still, despite the fact they're maybe not as attack-minded as the fans would like, generally speaking, they still like to play in the front foot. They are relatively direct. They want to get in behind as often as they can. This is a team that has shown itself capable of creating goal-scoring chances, and they have the the players to take those chances. In an attacking sense, Bento, he pushes his fullbacks up high. As you say, I've said a couple times, Ryan Bailey, who doesn't at the moment in the modern game, but nonetheless, that is a feature of how South Korea attack. And he frequently asks the, the central defenders to be the ones that start attacks from deep with the ball. Um, they do always have that option to go direct and over the top, which either gives them a way to get in behind against a high defensive line or keep the ball because the threat of a ball over the top pushes opposition defences back. And I've seen South Korea make good use of that where actually opposition teams are a little bit apprehensive to push too high because they do have that direct option and that allows South Korea to keep the ball. Uh, defensively, they counter-press well to win the, the ball back uh, as quickly as possible. They like to press high up the pitch and force turnovers in the opposition half. Um, without possession, it looks like a 4-1-3-2, um, although they will drop in, off into a 4-4-2 in a mid-block against stronger teams. So South Korea have the potential to be an attacking team. I'm not fully on board that they will be that team at this World Cup. Um, but they are built on a strong defensive footing and uh, that will be key, I think, to their chances in Qatar. Wonderful stuff. Thank you very much, Graham. Let's take a quick break. When we come back, let's dig a little more into the rosters of these group-based teams. Let's find out some very specific predictions too. Back shortly. Total Soccer Show, welcome back to our World Cup Group H preview. Let's take a look at some of the key players on these rosters now, shall we? We'll start off with Portugal. Joe, I assume you're going to talk about Cristiano a little bit, at least. 
Yeah, I will. I'll just start with Ronaldo because I, I think in some ways he's the most interesting bit about this team and in other ways he's the least interesting bit because we all kind of know about Ronaldo and I think reducing Portugal to just him is kind of sad because of how much other talent there is in this group. But Ronaldo will be playing as their number nine. He'll start several games in this tournament depending on how far Portugal go. He is excellent in the air. He is still a threat in transition. He can be an asset in pretty much every attacking phase of play. Defensively, he will be a liability for Portugal, but they compensate for that by defending deeper, right? If you defend deeper, there's not as much space that you have to deal with as a group, and you can run side to side, but you don't have to do as much covering in behind. So Portugal do have to accommodate Ronaldo, and and they're banking on it being worth it, basically. And we'll see whether or not that's the case. We'll go from from, from front to back then, I guess, starting with Ronaldo. Working back, I mean, Portugal's squad is filled with so much talent. You have Jao Felix, who's who's probably not going to start for them much in this tournament, but can be a a great option off the bench and is incredibly good technically, a good athlete as well. Rafael Leao has really burst onto the scene with AC Milan over the last couple of years in Serie A. There's a good chance he starts some in this tournament. Diogo Jota is injured, and so he's not in this squad for Fernando Santos. So watch out for, for Leao. He can burst in behind, good on the ball, likes to dribble. He's just a fun player to watch, sort of a classic winger in a lot of different ways. Bruno Fernandes will be the number 10 for stretches of this competition. He is silky smooth on the ball, great technically, uh, also not the best runner defensively. So him and Ronaldo up top, again, you can see the reasons why Portugal have to accommodate those players defensively. And then Bernardo Silva, who I think is just so darn good and really fun to watch. He conducts a lot of their attacks. Uh, He is nifty in tight spaces, a good athlete as well. We see he's willing to press. We see that for Pep Guardiola at Manchester City. The midfield for for Portugal is a little more functional. Usually it's going to be a double pivot in some sort of a 4-2-3-1, as I referenced earlier. It could be William Carvalho, it could be Ruben Neves, it could be João Mario, you have Vitinha as well in there, who is sort of this this a little more technical and, and oftentimes creative and risk-taking kind of midfielder. He just moved to PSG this season. Then we move back into the defense, and the defense is unreal in terms of the quality in their back four. I bet it's going to be João Cancelo and on one uh, one of the fullback spots. It's going to be Nuno Mendes and the other right back and left back. That's Man City and PSG, respectively, in terms of their clubs. And then another Man City-PSG combo that we could have in the middle of the back line. Ruben Diaz, who plays for Manchester City, and Danilo Pereira, who plays for PSG. He's sort of a, a midfielder-center-back hybrid, but I think at this point in his career, he's transitioned more into the back line. That is a a really good defense. They can progress the ball. They can drive forward. They can defend set pieces. They check a lot of boxes. And Portugal in general, I think, checks a lot of boxes outside of their front two defensively. I I think this team has so much quality in it. Then you go back into the goal. It's either going to be Rui Patricio, who started for Portugal in big moments in the past, or it's going to be uh, Diogo Costa, who is a goalkeeper for Porto. He's a good player as well, and has been getting a decent number of starts for Portugal recently. It would not surprise me if he starts in this game. Taylor, are you a big Diogo Costa fan? What's what's the you got to explain? Oh yeah. oh yeah, I think you might have been off that week. Uh, that was the week that Graham and I did a bunch of shows together, and we were both sort of gushing about Diogo uh, Costa. I always have to say that one slowly because otherwise it's Diego Costa and things get confusing. But yeah, his his distribution, especially really long, is excellent if there's a high back line. But he's also just a very good goalkeeper. He's really good with his feet. I think he is a potential breakout star of this tournament and hmm. uh, likely to command a massive fee in January or next summer if things go even moderately well for him in Portugal in this tournament. 
We know how to play soccer in Porto. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. That's that's all I got on, on Portugal as well. So much quality in this team. They are lovely to watch in those little rondo combination moments. We'll see if, if they can sort of pull out anything other than that on the tactical side for this competition. Good stuff. Thank you very much, Joe. Um, a little note on Ghana and uh, some notable players they've got. Now, when I talked about the, their, their tactics and their manager, I, I might have sounded a little bit uh, acute on that one, but my, the point I was making was they've got a pretty inexperienced coach who doesn't really have senior um, experience at all. Uh, as such, doesn't really have a philosophy that he plays. He's tried a lot of things. It seems like he's throwing a lot of spaghetti at the wall, from what I can tell there. And Overall, probably not a fantastic team, if I'm going to be a bit harsh about things. But they do have several players who you will have seen week in, week out in in the top leagues. And I think their star man is uh, undoubtedly Thomas Partey, who is pretty much the glue that holds Arsenal together. You could say in many ways, I think he does a similar job for this Ghana team. Controls the passing, screens the defence, excellent distribution. He will be very crucial to any success this Ghana team may have. Um, and the OU brothers are still doing it in this team. Andre OU is 32 now, uh, a, a veteran with Al Sad playing his te- uh, soccer, team soccer in Al Sad now. Um, he scored on the USMNT in 2014 in that uh, aforementioned US 2-1 win. A um, couple other names you will know. Tarek Lamptey, of course, from Brighton at fullback. Uh, and England under 21 was Lamptey, now with Ghana, of course. Uh, breakout with Brighton. Tick that box. Tick that indeed. box if you're scoring yeah, at home. There it is. Um, <laughs> I think this could be a, a big tournament for him. And one uh, other to note is Iñaki Williams, the brother of Nico Williams, who obviously represents Spain and has had full caps for Spain. But Iñaki chose to represent Ghana. So we have a situation with two brothers on different teams, like the Jackers we had uh, at a recent tournament as well. So that's uh, an interesting one. Oh, I'll, I'll name one more player as well um, who really could be a key one to watch. He might even be that player who gets a big deal after this tournament concludes. That's the winger, Abdul Fatawu Izahaku, who plays at Sporting. He's 18 years old. Uh, the Guardian named him as, uh, they, I quote, they, they said he's arguably the greatest African prospect of his generation, and he was named in their Next Generation 2021 uh, supplement they did last year so uh, uh, he's been doing very well in Portugal and as I say he might be a big move there's already been rumours uh, of linking him to Man United linking him to Liverpool as well he's got a 60 million euro release clause at Sporting so if anyone does um, uh, you know reach their heads above the parapet in this Ghana team I think it might be Izahaku in this team that does so uh, Taylor, Uruguay, and their key players, and their roster, if you will. Sure. Um, as I said, starting with the defense, they've got a lot of veteran ability there, but not a lot of veteran speed. Uh, I talked about them already. Uh, between the sticks will be Fernando Muslera, most likely. They've had a couple other players get some uh, time more recently. Sergio Rocher, I think that's how you say that one. Uh, 29-year-old goalkeeper from Nacional has gotten a few caps, uh, but I would assume Muslera, with his 133 caps, will be the starter. Uh, as I said, there's also a ton of depth to this team. And that is one that I think could be 
tricky for Diego Alonso with the formation he goes with because you've got depth up top and you've got depth in that midfield. Uh, Matias Vecino uh, has started a ton of games for them as the kind of holding midfielder, the central central midfielder in a 4-3-3, also in a 4-4-2, he will play there. Uh, but you could have Lucas Torreira, the aforementioned, uh, play that same role. Uh, Rodrigo Bentancur of Tottenham, who's been very strong for them this season and brings the intensity that you would uh, expect to be required of of playing for Antonio Conte, he will bring that one to this national team. And then Fede Valverde. We love Federico Valverde. Uh, he might be on the left in a 4-4-2. He might be one of the central midfielders. Or if they even changed it up and went like 4-2-3-1, he could play as that number 10. For people who aren't as familiar, I would say he's a player who should cost 100 million euros and would start at pretty much any club. Just that midfield for Real Madrid is quite good itself. But he has got an engine on an engine on an engine. He will be covering ground at full speed in the 90th minute while everyone is gasping for air but then he's also capable of making the sort of slaloming runs that that I really enjoy willingness to shoot when it's on and from distance I think Fede Valverde is is one of the more electric players we're going to have in this competition genuinely I really enjoy every time I get to watch him play so I hope he plays plenty for Uruguay and then up top uh, we do have Darwin Nunez uh, Ryan you mentioned him previously uh, 23 years old three goals and 13 appearances for Uruguay uh, a a very much threat in the air. He's a he's a target option for them, especially if they go with a four four two. Then he does present that aerial threat, also the more vertical threat because he can get behind. Uh, they use him to sort of uh, break a high line, but if they need to, he will be the sort of outlet ball. Uh, he's very good at holding up with with uh, back to goal and laying off for his most likely strike strike partner, Luis Suarez, still around, thirty five hey. years old, playing for Nacional, all time leader in appearances and goals for Uruguay, most goals of any. Uruguayan in qualifying, so uh, I don't know why I said qualifying like that, but I did, uh, and, and will be a starter for them in this one. Edson Cavani, I'm guessing, will be more of a sub. I don't think he has the fitness or the legs to go 90 minutes three times in pretty short order. Only, I think, seven appearances uh, in Spain this season, though he has gotten four goals in that time. So still very much uh, lethal in front of goal is Cavani. I would expect him to be a sub. Uh, Darwin Nunez can play on the left for this team if they go with a 4-3-3, and I would surprised by how much solid defensive work he did, uh, but as uh, was kind of showcased in their 1-0 loss to Iran, when you have him uh, doing more defensive stuff, when you have Palestri on the right doing more defensive stuff, you don't have them being as involved in the attack, and if you are sort of slow to move everybody up because that defense can't handle a counterattack... It leads to a lot of breakdowns in attack. You don't get very much consistent attacking player opportunities. So that's where I think if they go with a 4-3-3, it means they're probably doing more defensive stuff, and that means we'll probably get different personnel there. Uh, so maybe against Portugal, that's something we'll see. But against somebody like Ghana, I'm guessing we're going to get more uh, more of a 4-4-2 with uh, very strong attacking players in there to get the goals, to get that win, to make sure that they are in solid position for the next round. Thank you very much, Taylor. Graham, uh, the Korea Republic, please. Their roster, their key players. Uh, Hung Min Sun obviously um, picked up an injury recently. Um, presumably they got some cover for him should he not play all the games. Uh, not really. No. Oh, good. <laughs> so South Korea, they, they have a, a good squad, um, but their, their one genuinely world-class player is Hyung Min Son. And I looked a lot into how this team plays and some of the key players and they really are built around Hyung Min Son, which is, you know, isn't so surprising given that how good he is. Um, and as you say, there is some concern 
over his fitness. He suffered a, a facial injury not long before the World Cup. He is in the squad. I have been following some of the, the South Korean updates on Son's fitness. It's a, it reminds me a little bit of... Ryan, you'll remember this. What was the World Cup? David Beckham was uh, was struggling for fitness. Was that 2002? Yes. And it felt like there were ta- there was tabloid updates on how he was doing every day. Hyungman Son is very much the David Beckham of South Korean football. I, I saw a video of him getting getting off a bus in Qatar earlier this t- today, and and a lot of South Korean fans getting excited that he was there and he looked okay. I think it's a possibility that he will play with a mask for South Korea, but he is. He's their main man. And you say, do they have any cover for him? Well, well, not really, no, because I don't think they have anyone else who is so good in quick transition, who has the ability to take on and beat defenders in open space. And the whole game plan are, are revolves around getting him into good positions and, and, and the whole idea is to get him into that space that he can make the most of. So I do think it's a bit of a disaster for South Korea, <clears throat> excuse me, if they, if they don't have him fit. Um, defensively, it's, it's difficult to look at South Korea and not see Min Jae Kim as their best and most important player. He is the the complete central defender in terms of the qualities that he has. He's physically strong. He's good in the air. He's good in the tackle. His positioning is good. This shouldn't be too surprising given the level he's playing at for Napoli this season. He's been very good in Serie A since, since joining in the summer. Um, and he's also very important to the way South Korea play out from the back when they have possession. Without him there wouldn't be the link between the defence and the midfield. Um, in midfield, South Korea rely on the partnership between Inbyom Hwang and Hugh Young-jung. Um, so Hwang is an attack-minded player who has a good expected assist per 90 ratio and a good progressive passing record. Um, so he's the one charged with breaking the lines and, and pushing South Korea forward. And then on the flip side, Jung is, is strong at stepping in and stopping opposition attacks. He, he does also have some ability in the ball and he can get South Korea going forward, but Jung is largely the one who brings the structure and the defensive fibre to this team. Um, Bento likes to play a midfield anchor at the base of his midfield, and some fans complain that this means South Korea can't play, as they see it, the three most creative players together. So that would be uh, Huang, uh, Lee Jae Sung, and Lee, Lee Kang In, um, who obviously La Liga fans will know. So there's only two places really in Bento's team for those three players, and I think a lot of South Korea fans would like to see those three those three play together, and I don't think that's terribly likely at this World Cup. Uh, Huang Hee Chan could also be considered a key player in terms of his ability, but he's not in great form for Wolves at the moment, so it's not entirely clear what shape he'll be in at the World Cup. Um, but yes, yeah, it's, it's a good squad. There are a number of players playing at a high level in Europe, a number of recognisable names, but I cannot stress just how important Son is to this team. If, if he's playing and, he's, and he plays well, then that is a game changer for South Korea. If he's unfit and not playing well, then that is also a game changer for South Korea, but not in a positive way. All right. Thank you very much, Graham. Sounds like they are very much leaning on one player. Let's finally do our very specific predictions. Joe Lowry, I'll let you take first bat here with your Portugal VSP. Okay. My VSP for Portugal is that they will not allow more than one goal in each group stage game. For as flashy as this team is when you look at them on paper, I think they are less than the sum of their parts at times. The focus for them, I think, like it will be for a lot of the big teams who play like they do, is on the defensive side. So Portugal haven't allowed two goals or more since November of 2021. That was a game against Serbia. They've gone eight games without allowing more than a single goal in a match. I think that's going to continue. I think they will hold all three of their group stage opponents to either one goal 
or zero goals. And the focus, as I said, for Fernando Santos will be on keeping things tight defensively. Marvelous stuff. Thank you, Joe. The VSP I'm going to give you for Ghana is, I'm sorry to say, I believe they will score two goals or fewer in this tournament. So no more than two goals, I believe, for the Black Stars here. Um, During World Cup qualification, they failed to score in 40% of their matches and averaged under a goal per game in those games. So this team, um, what we do know about them, and we don't know an awful lot, or I certainly don't from, from what I've been looking at, they're not good at scoring or creating chances. So I think, uh, I think I, I'm sorry to say, I think it's a fourth place for Ghana. And I think they are not going to find the net as much as they would hope. And maybe as much as some of their talent would allow them to with the likes of Partey and Iñaki Williams and so on uh, on their team. Uh, Taylor, Uruguay, VSP, please. Yes, sir. Uh, my very specific prediction is that Luis Suarez will score a penalty. Uh, and I feel like it might be against Portugal. Uh, Uruguay, masters of the dark arts. Ryan, I know you mentioned Portugal pretty skilled in that department as well, but Uruguay have some talents of their own. Uh, yeah. I think they will attack swiftly down the channels. I think they're going to ping crosses in. I think especially if they're really trying to go for a win against Portugal, I think that will be the the game that decides a lot of this group. And I think both teams will be actively trying to avoid playing Brazil in the next round. So I could see Uruguay going for it late. I could see them finding a way to earn that penalty. And then uh, if that happens, up steps Luis Suarez. Uh, He scored eight goals in qualifying. As I said, four of those were penalties. He is 14 for 15 uh, for Uruguay for the national team. So uh, if there's a penalty, he is going to take it. He's going to score it. The only wrinkle here would be uh, if it's against Ghana, in which case I kind of hope he misses it. Uh, just because that feels like the universe uh, writing things, correcting past mistakes. Uh, But if he scores it, then maybe we just know that the ball don't lie and uh, it never should have been a goal in the first place, even though it definitely should have been. But either way, Luis Suarez, going to score a penalty in this one. All right. And last but not least, Graham, the VSP for Hoyman Son plus 10. (laughs) So my VSP is is actually not related to Son because I'm going to make the assumption that he's going to play, right? Even if if he's... uh, or there will be he's energy. only got kind of yeah. ha- half a face, kind of two-face Batman style uh, at this World Cup. I think he's going to be in this team, su- such as a reliance on him. So I- I'm going to use Minji Kim as a barometer of success for this team. So I'm going to say if he can complete 60% of his progressive passes at this tournament, South Korea will score in every match they play at the World Cup. And if he can't, if opposition teams can stifle that supply line from Kim into players like Son and into the wide areas... Then they won't, and I think they'll they'll struggle struggle to score goals. Every match that I've seen of South Korea, that supply line from Kim is very very important, and um, so that is my VSP for South Korea. And also, South Korea will win every match they play in the multicolored brush stroke away kit they have because that shirt is a banger and one of the best <laughs> at this World Cup. Nicely done, uh, Graham. The last task we have is to select two teams who are going to come out of this group. One would think Portugal's name would be first on that list. But, I mean, it doesn't seem like it's terribly harmonious at the moment, as we covered on this episode. It seems like Ronaldo seems to be annoying everybody. Maybe there's some Mm. echoes of French mutiny that could happen here. If you had to say, who do you think will come out of this group? I still think it'll be Portugal and, and Uruguay. I think Ghana will finish bottom and then South Korea will be the one that is that is squeezed out. But it would not surprise me at all if Portugal, given the way that they play and given the, the issues they're having at the moment, if they kind of scrape their way through into the last 16 and actually Uruguay are the, the dominant team in this group. Okay, yeah, I think I'd, I'd go with that. My order would be Uruguay, Portugal, 
Korea Republic than Ghana. Joe, any movement on that? No, that exact four is is my order as well. I think it's going to be Portugal and Uruguay who make it out of this one. Tata, what do you think? Yep, uh, the same. I think I think there's a chance Uruguay top this group. I think Diego Alonso might get found out in the knockout rounds against uh, stronger opposition, uh, but I could see them even grinding a draw and then going through on goal difference or even getting that win against Portugal. Either way, Portugal and Uruguay in some order uh, advancing out of this one. Yes, indeed. And bear in mind, uh, the this group would meet up with Group G. So um, the team that finishes second likely to face Brazil in the round of 16. So Oh, really? I didn't know that. I believe that's the case, right? Is that all right? I, I've said that twice on this episode, Ryan. <laughs> <laughs> Glad right. to know. Glad to know we're all listening. All right, cool. Good stuff. Okay, and just one more thing to note. The, the, person, the team that finishes second in this group uh, might face oh, cool. Brazil. Ah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, that was just about. Uh, this is the this is the last of this is the last yeah. of eight group stage yeah. previews. So I'm actually going to give you some forgiveness for that, Ryan Bailey. <laughs> it's been a very long lifetime, Greg. That's all I'll say. Um, but for now, we're going to wrap up our World Cup previews. Thank you, listener, for sticking with us on the shows. Taylor Rockwell, thank you uh, for most of the words I've heard you say this episode. <laughs> my, my pleasure, my friend. Can I give you one more uh, thing that people should be aware of? Uh, sure. Does it pertain to the finishing uh, rankings in groups G and H? Maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it does not. Ryan Bailey, thank you so much for hosting. Uh, this has been great. I'm glad we got through every single group. I feel prepared. I do feel more enthusiastic for the start of the World Cup. That might be because it's like yeah. days away from starting, but mm-hmm. it has felt like a weird run-up to this one. We haven't had that break in play. There have been games going on, so it just feels like now the leagues have finally stopped and people can focus on the World Cup, whereas normally we have weeks to do that. Uh, but I'm excited that all these previews are done and we can look forward to watching actual World Cup soccer. Excellent stuff. I'm with you there, bud. Uh, Graham Ruthven, thank you very much as always, sir. Thank you, Ryan Bailey. And yes, I very much agree. Finally, it does feel like the World Cup is just around the corner. When we started these previews, I did not have that feeling yeah. at all. But I have to say it yeah. started to, to permeate through my uh, my being. And Joe Lowry, we should note we are just days away from the TSS crew meeting in person. And we've all agreed we're all going to meet at the airport and have a giant hug together when we meet before our live show. Uh, you're in, right? I, I'm i fine with that. I think Graham might be less fine with that. But, I mean, we can sort that out what next week. What airport is yeah. this? <laughs> oh, you'll find out. So, all right, just so I know which one to avoid. Yeah. Oh, yeah. oh I just assume because Graham would actively avoid uh, human contact and hugging at all costs, not just yeah, because that's... he's getting there a day early. No, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm mostly about the hugging thing, but yeah, the day early thing does make that more difficult as well. <laughs> all right, listener, thank you very much. Uh, we will, of course, be uh, broadcasting throughout the World Cup every day, covering all the games, and we've got our live shows coming up in Brooklyn. If you happen to be in the vicinity, please do pop along. But for now... Bye!